This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. Well, it is so good to have you here with us tonight. If you're going to go ahead and make your way back to your seat or to your space. Thank you, teenagers, for taking, taking a seat on the floor. You probably could find a few more chairs in here if you wanted to, but, you know, it's kind of cool being on the floor, right? Yeah. Kind of feels like you're an elite group. Glad to have you with us. You guys are up close and personal tonight. It's going to be good. Well, hey, I, I have the privilege of introducing uh, our guest of honor, our guest speaker tonight. Pastor Lee Cummings is with yeah. us. And uh, if you were here last year, Pastor Lee came to Landmark Assembly and preached, and, man, it was so powerful, so good. Uh, I think one of my favorite, if not my favorite message that's ever been preached from, from this platform is what he shared with us last year. And, and uh, we, we just, Pastor Lee, we love you so much. We're so grateful for you. Um, yeah. Pastor Lee, he, uh, he leads a church in Kalamazoo, Michigan with multiple campuses uh, called Radiant Church. He also oversees a network of churches of which we are a part. And he actually just wrote uh, a new book called Give No Rest. And it's a book about prayer. And I want to encourage you, we have this out uh, in our, I don't know, it's not called a bookstore. What is it called? A merch, merch corner? Yeah, it's in the merch corner. It's also on Amazon. I want to encourage you to, to pick up this book. One of the things he talks about is uh, this idea in it that, that he believes there's, there's churches that God is raising up to be these kind of like tent peg churches uh, that he's going to use in, in this day and age as the return of Jesus comes closer and closer. And uh, we, we believe that we are one of those churches. We resonate with that. Uh, we want to be a, a house of prayer, a house, of, of, uh, a house that helps usher in the, the kingdom of God and the work that God wants to do in these last days. And so make sure you grab one of these, get, pick that up. Um, it's a great read for you. Uh, and then would you help me in welcoming Pastor Lee as he comes up right now? Come on. Thank you. Man, it's so good to be here. And uh, this place is packed. This is crazy. These guys don't know this is the spit zone. So, as preachers, we get, we get on a tear and spit starts flying. Impartation takes place. How are you guys doing tonight? You know, I just want to start by saying this, Josh and Sarah. I just love and appreciate you and respect you guys so much. You guys have terrific leaders and pastors in this house. It's always fun to be invited someplace. It's even better to be invited back. Yeah. And so grateful to be here. And, and I just want to say to you, Josh, that during worship, I felt like the Lord just said this, is to tell you that this next year is going to be marked by financial miracles in, in this house. Uh, I really have a sense of that, that uh, I, don't, I, I wish I knew the how, I wish I knew the when, but I just believe the Lord just wanted to plant that seed that this next year have expectation there's going to be financial miracles that take place in this house and uh, helps move you forward into the next next arena that God has for you guys. All right, you guys, how many of you have your Bibles tonight? Who brought a Bible to church? I like to see Bibles. Hold your Bible up. I want to see your Bible in the air. Okay, 
That's, that's a beautiful sight. If you have your Bible on your phone, go ahead and hold your phone up. That's all right. Now, if you didn't bring one because you have it memorized and it's written in your heart, go ahead and just raise your hand. God bless you. For the rest of us, uh, I want to invite you open Acts chapter 4. I want to talk to you tonight about the four most dangerous words ever used to describe the church. Do you know what the devil fears most is he fears a dangerous church. I'm not talking about a, uh, a church that is neutralized or homogenized or pasteurized or whatever eyes do you want to throw on there. He's afraid of a dangerous church. And in Acts chapter 4, the five most dangerous words in the whole Bible that have ever been used to describe the church in action are found in Acts chapter 4. And so I want to draw your attention to verse 23. We're going to read, we're going to start just by reading the word, about 10 verses, right in the middle of a story, right in the middle of when Peter and John and the apostles have been arrested for preaching the gospel. In verse 23, when we pick up, it says, And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31. And when they had prayed. Five words. If you have your Bibles open and you've got a pen, I encourage you to underline that phrase. Verse number 31. And when they had prayed. The place where they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Those five words are the most, five most dangerous words that have ever been used to describe the church. There are a lot of things in the Bible that have been used to describe the church. A glorious church, a radiant church without spot or wrinkle. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But when we consider what kind of church is it that Jesus will build that is hell-proof? that is resistant to any and all assaults of the enemy, the answer is found in verse 31. Yeah. And when they had prayed. Yeah. 
I want to talk about that for the next few moments because I really believe that God is speaking just like Pastor Josh said, that this is a praying church. Not just a church that prays, but it is a church that's been marked by God at the turning of an era to erect tentpole churches across this culture that will be places that host the presence of God in an unusual fashion. To host a revival and an awakening that we have not yet seen with our natural eyes, but yet God's not gonna wait until it's on the scene to prepare churches. He's preparing churches that will host it when it comes. And I believe that this house is one of those houses. And so I wanna share this message with you, but would you pray with me first? Holy Spirit, today I need you, we need you to come and to take my words and to shape them into the words that glorify Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we need you to come and open up the eyes of our heart and open up the ears of our heart to be able to see and to hear what you're saying. Lord, we're not just looking for information tonight. We're looking for revelation that changes our lives. Lord, I'm believing that tonight the trajectory of people's lives, young people's lives, is about to be forever shifted and changed. Lord, I believe that destinies are about to be called out. I believe that demons are about to tremble and shake because this is about to become an even more dangerous church. And we need your presence, so we welcome you in this place in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. Leonard Ravenhill one time said this. He said, let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church and the place will still look smart and clean, but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room for it is the center of its spiritual life. Leonard Ravenhill, who's the great 20th century revivalist, really a prophet, he's talking about the boiler room, the furnace room of the church is the prayer room. It's the prayer meeting. You know, most people measure the success of a church by the number of people that show up on Sundays. And that's one metric, and I think it's important to pay attention to, because every life that walks through the doors is a life that is either in relationship with Jesus or someone that Jesus is in pursuit of them. And so we glorify God. We want our churches packed. We want every seat to be filled. We want altars to be full. We want Sunday school classes to be overflowing. We want the diaper bins to be on crisis mode. I mean, we want... We, we want full services. We love that. But I'm not necessarily sure that we ought to measure the success and the health of a church by the Sunday services as much as by the prayer meeting. Because prayer, and I'm talking about both personal prayer individually in our lives, but then collectively the, the, the corporate anointing that takes place when we pray together is the boiler room of the church. You know, right now when... When you came into church, maybe for the first time here or at another church, and you maybe said, "Hey, show me around some of the things you wanted to see first, or take me to the take me to the children's ministry space. I want to see that because I've got kids, and I want to see. You know, are the rooms is are they decorated? Are they excellent? Do they have security systems? All that kind of stuff. Or you might say, "Show me the youth room." Or you might say, show me the sanctuary because I want to see the screens and the distance. Do they have chairs or do they have pews? Is there a cross on the wall? Is there, you know, what, do they have a boom camera that's going to hit me in the side of the head if I lift my hand during worship? I mean, we want to see the nursery, the, the lobby, the coffee shop, but nobody ever says, show me the boiler room. 
I'm from Michigan, or the otherwise known as the People's Socialist Republic of Michigan. <laughs> and I mean, it's a very progressive place, but it's also a very cold place in the winter. I, you guys get a little bit of cold, but like we get cold, cold. And you know, if somebody showed up to church on a Sunday and our furnace was not working, everybody would know it. And in that moment, if the furnace wasn't working, it wouldn't matter how nice the sanctuary was, how clean the children's ministry space was. It wouldn't matter of how nice the light settings are. None of those things would matter in that moment as much as trying to fix the furnace so that we can warm the place up. Well, if the prayer room is the boiler room of the church, why is it that we're content with everything looking okay, but the spiritual thermostat on the wall for many churches registers cold? And I believe what Jesus wants to do is he wants to get into the church, into the boiler room once again, and he wants to replace and he wants to fix the heating distribution, the prayer room, and the prayer emphasis in the church so that we can experience revival. God's not going to start revival out there. God's going to start revival right here. And before he starts it in this room, he's going to start it in this room. Personal revival leads to corporate renewal, which leads to cultural reformation. But it starts on the inside of us. This last summer, a movie came out. I know we're in church, and you're not supposed to see movies. <laughs> By the way, when I was like six years old, I grew up in a Pentecostal holiness church, and movies sent you straight to hell. But I was eight years old and wanted to see Star Wars so bad. It was Empire Strikes Back, and I was in there the whole time going, please, Jesus, don't, don't have the rapture take place while I'm watching this, but it's worth it. And since that time, I realized Jesus likes movies too. But there was a movie that came out called Oppenheimer. Did anybody see Oppenheimer? So if you don't know, Oppenheimer is a true story about a theoretical nuclear physicist that during World War II was brought in by the, the government in the middle of World War II to help take the theory of atomic energy and bring it into reality. You see, Einstein had done all kinds of work as well as several different German physicists that began to understand how the universe works and the atom, which is unseen, but it's the smallest molecular structure that they were aware of at that time that was made up of neutrons and protons and surrounded by a cloud of electrons. And that that's what matter was made up of. And they had all these mathematical formulas about this is why that is there. Even though we've never seen it, we know that atoms are there. And within every atom is immense, immense energy and power. And if we can find a way to harness that nuclear power, that atomic structure, if we can penetrate it, we can release the power that's on the inside of it. That was on paper. But during World War II, the most uh, advanced scientific community was in Germany under Hitler's regime, and they were racing to get a nuclear bomb. So the U.S. government brought a man in who was at that time probably one of the smartest men of his era, which his name was J. Robert Oppenheimer. And his job was to take the theory and to assemble the greatest minds and to figure out how to actually do it and to build a bomb and to build Hitler, and to beat Hitler to it. Well, what we know is that they did it. There's a big long story, that's what the movie's about. But it actually, the atomic bomb 
was the product of this whole group. And the atomic bomb, when it was dropped twice on Japan, is what ended World War II. Now, when they were asked about this, here's what Oppenheimer said about this. He, he's talking about the theory of atomic power. He said, they, speaking of the scientific community as well as the enemies, he said, they won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Theory will only take you so far. Can I tell you, we've had a lot of books on prayer written. I wrote one. I mean, I wrote a book on prayer, but prayer, books on prayer are only theory. I mean, we've got all kinds of books on all kinds of things, but they're only theory. And what's interesting about atomic power running parallel with prayer is that both are theories about the unseen. And that just like the atomic bomb, we believe, because the Bible tells us, that our prayers speak into the unseen realm and that they actually have power to change and to shift things. And so we say we believe that, but just like he said, and we're not really going to understand it and we're not really going to believe it until it's been used, until we see it, because theory will only take you so far. But yet here, I believe with all of my heart that the church has been given a gift from heaven called prayer, called intercessory prayer, called prayer of faith, that We've only believed on paper in theory, but we have no idea of the immense power that is available to us in this moment. You see, the weakest prayer of the weakest Christian is more powerful than the greatest strength of the wisest and most powerful human being in their own efforts. And so we know, well, I know I should pray, but we really don't believe that our prayers are changing generations can create legacies and shift history. We really don't believe that because it's unseen to us. But yet the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight, which means there are some things that we don't see that are eternal. And the things that are in the natural, they are subject to change because they're temporary. But we live as if the things that we see are real and the things that we don't see are kind of real, but maybe not. But the Bible says it's actually the opposite. And we spend all of our time and all of our efforts trying to accomplish things in the flesh, utilizing means and theories that are subject to change and temporary, but yet we have the laws of faith and we have the laws of prayer. And when, when we pray, even though we can't see it, just like an Adam, our words, our prayers, God's word in our mouth in agreement with him on earth as it is in heaven is actually penetrating the atoms of the kingdom of God and has the potential to release atomic power in our lifetimes, in our cities, in our church, in our families, and the mushroom cloud of that, the radioactive effect of that is gonna roll out in our cities and even beyond that. But what God's gotta do is he's gotta find a people who actually believe that. And what the devil wants to do is to keep you distracted, to keep you living in a status quo Christianity, and to keep you prayerless. Read your Bible all day long. Just don't believe any of it. And go to church. Just be scrolling ESPN 
making it look like you're reading you version. Because you know college football sees, do you guys have college football teams down here? Them's fighting words. I hear, I hear prayers going up, Lord. Strike him dead. <laughs> See, what would happen if we really believed? Somebody asked me one time, they said, why do, you think, why do you think the American church doesn't pray like Christians in other places of the world? And I, here's a simple answer. Is we don't really believe prayer changes anything. We want to believe it, but we've not seen it because theory will only take you so far. But yet in verse 31, here they are in Jerusalem being persecuted by the very same people who crucified Jesus. They have wanted posters of Peter and John all over town. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. They've been harassed for the name of Jesus. They show back up and they pray one of those, oh God prayers. God, you've got to do something. You've got to move. We're living in the middle of a hostile culture and community. And Lord, we need you to move. And you know what? God did move. And when he moved, verse 31 says, it started with God shaking the place where they were in. And there's five things in this story that I believe are available to us if we will respond to the question of what happens if and when the church prays. Because if it's true that these five words are the most powerful words, and when they had prayed, then the question is, what happens when we pray? I want to take the next few minutes and talk to you about what I believe happens when we pray. When that becomes a priority, when we silence the voice of the enemy, when we get undistracted and we shut some things down in our life so that we can give ourselves to the ministry of prayer. Because this is the call of God in the hour in which we're living in. So what happens when the church prays? Number one, prayer shakes us. Prayer shakes us. Verse 31, the place where they were at was shaken. See, God wants his church unshaken by the things that are happening in the world, but radically shaken by his holiness and his presence and the revelation of who he is. He doesn't want us shaken by what we see in the world, but oftentimes in the church, it's the exact opposite. We're paralyzed by fear by what we see happening in the world around us. I mean, is the world going crazy? Yes. I mean, there are crazy things. And you know what? We, all, we have the benefit of being the first generation that's watching all the craziness in the world in live television reality. We see it. And we're not just getting the news from our community. We've got the whole planet to see crazy. I mean, we're calling boys, girls, and girls, boys, and non-boys, and non-girls. And we've got wars and rumors of wars. And we've, we've got uh, elections coming up. I don't know if anybody's noticed that. And I mean, we, we've got nuclear crazy. And for a lot of people, what this does is it shakes us. It's like, I'm shaking. I don't know. Is, is this too, is, have we gone past the point of no return? Is, is this too much? I don't know. Do we really believe in a God who's in heaven, who looks at what we have done and goes, yeah, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> or, or looking at something and going, I don't know what to do. This is too much. 
No, no, we serve a God who sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs at the efforts of the enemy. He laughs at darkness. Do you know something about darkness? Darkness isn't a force. Darkness is a void. Darkness can only exist where light refuses to shine. That's the only place darkness. I mean, you can have a pitch black room. It only takes one small little spark. I mean, in Sunday school, we learned it only takes a spark. How many remember that? Only takes a spark to keep. Nobody? Okay. But yet we look at the darkness and we think it's too powerful. But yet Jesus calls us the light of the world. God wants us to be shaken, but he wants us to be shaken by him. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, who's the prophet, starts off that chapter by saying this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What does he mean by that? In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was one of the best kings. It was a time of stability, of prosperity. It, protection. But when he dies, all of a sudden now there's instability. There's economic calamity. Assyria is on the doorstep wanting to invade. There's division in the kingdom. And so when he's saying in the year that King Uzziah died, he's not just marking dates on a calendar. He's saying this is a crisis moment. And in this year that is a crisis moment, he says, I saw the Lord. And when I saw him, he was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And when I saw his presence, it says, and the threshold of the temple shook. It shook. And he says, I saw seraphim, angelic beings, these fiery beings that are swirling around the presence of the Lord, covering their eyes because he's, he's so holy. And all they can say is, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you know 800 years in the future, John would see that same throne room scene? And you know what those angels are still saying 800 years later? Holy, holy, holy. I mean, how awesome did that scene have to be? What's Isaiah's response? Isaiah's response is, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from an unclean people. And the angel comes and takes a coal and sets it to his lips. Says, your sins have been atoned for. And what's the immediate response of Isaiah? Here, my Lord. Send me. See, he went from being shaken by the world to being shook by the presence of God. And that's the kind of shaken that God wants to happen. And uh, that takes place when we pray because prayer becomes not a legalistic obligation, but prayer becomes a intimate revelation of who God is. And listen, you can't be in the presence of Jesus and step out the same way. You, you give God, I think so many times we're spending hours trying to fix our problems and we're spending years in therapy, and I believe in therapy, it's fine, it's great, I've gone. But listen, one moment in the presence of God can do more than a thousand hours in a counselor's office. Just one moment in prayer. One hour in prayer can shake you to the very core because a revelation of who God is. And listen, in our churches, we got our eyes on all kinds of things. We're building out our calendars. We're, 
developing our programs and we're trying to market and brand ourselves and I'm just talking about the American church as a whole but yet maybe what we need to do is in the middle of crisis come back and say God open up the heavens and give us a glimpse of who you are again we need to be shaken one more time I was shaken when I was 12 years old, but I haven't been shaken in a while, Jesus. I want to just see you who you are. I'm not looking for Christmas Jesus, meek and mild. I'm looking for eschatological Jesus, strong and wild, coming back on a horse with faithful and true written on his leg and a sword coming out of his mouth and destroying all of his enemies because he's just. I'm looking for that Jesus. Woo, that Jesus. That's not a politically correct Hippie social justice warrior Jesus. No, that's the Jesus that Isaiah saw seated on the throne. And we see that Jesus, it will shake us to the absolute core. Which leads us to number two, when the church prays, prayer emboldens us. This is what happened in the early church. It says, they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, what a scared world needs most is a fearless church. Is a fearless church. The devil wants a scared church. He wants us to be weak. And you know, when we begin to see pressure applied and persecution for maybe some of the first times in, in our culture, in our world, in our Western civilization, we're not used to getting called out for being Christians. 20, 25 years ago, maybe it's like this still here to some degree, but 20, 25 years ago, if you said you were a Christian, everybody thought, well, you're trustworthy. You've got a moral compass. You've got a good family focus. That's wonderful. Today, you tell somebody you're a Christian, it's you're a bigot. You're part of a hate group. You're narrow-minded, and you're the problem. And so what's happened is a lot of Christians have begun to back up and say, I'm a Christian, but... And the degree that we boldly proclaim the gospel. We don't boldly proclaim the gospel anymore because we're afraid of somebody might block us on Facebook. But yet the rest of the church around the world, beautiful Christians, have been experiencing persecution for eras. This is normal Christian life. It's written in the Bible. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It just says, if you're going to live for Jesus, it's coming. Jesus himself said it. What did Jesus say? He said, if the world hates me, then they're going to love you because you're so much nicer than I am. Isn't that what it? Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Listen, we can love people even if they don't love us. And the greatest way that we can express love to the world is by being bold. It's by being bold in our faith. But boldness is born out of the place of prayer. Boldness comes when you've been face to face with the Lord and you know who you are in him. I don't need anybody to tell me who I am. Because if you didn't bring me into the world, then you can't define me. Jesus made a profound statement. Jesus said in John 8, verse 14, he said, I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. Do you know that most people in this world can't answer those two questions? They don't know where they're from and they don't know where they're going. So they get stuck in the moment right now. I know where I came from. I was dead in my trespasses and in my sin. I was an enemy of God. I was in this world without Christ and without hope and I had nothing. But yet, because God in his rich love 
and his rich mercy loved me. He's made me who was a slave, now a son. He seated me with Christ in heavenly places. He has lavished his grace upon me. He's given me an inheritance with Jesus Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs in me. I've got life that the devil can't touch. You might be able to kill my body, but you can't kill my spirit. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And I was created to rule in the reign with the God who created the universe. That's who I am. And listen, if you're a child of God, that's who you are. I don't care if you're, you've been a Christian for five minutes or five decades. I love the fact that we're starting to see little trickles of young people experiencing this boldness. We're, we've seen it in our community where we're seeing Gen Z, like a lot of you that are in, the, in this front row who are in some of the most hostile environments are boldly witnessing. We had, we had a, a couple kids in our youth group last year who decided they wanted to reach uh, kids in their high school, and so they joined the wrestling team. One was a wrestler. The other one was like, I'll join it just to partner up with you. And their, their goal was not to be good at wrestling, even though one was pretty good. It was to lead their teammates to the Lord. And I can't remember, Rick, how many was it? Like five they had left. Was it, they led nine of their teammates to Christ in one season. I mean, to join a wrestling team. I mean, guys will do anything to win somebody to the Lord. Sure, I'll put on a onesie and go wrestle with other guys on a mat. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one for Jesus. I'm talking about boldness. And you know what? Here's the thing. I think the devil's overplaying his hand in this generation. I think he's overplaying his hand. I kind of, you know... I kind of hope they just like make it illegal to have, call this hate speech, please. Call this book hate speech and outlaw it. Because you know what you will have happen? In public schools all over America, guys who used to be slinging dope are going to be over here going, I got some NIV. I got some ESV, some CSB, some New King James. You got, a, you got a King James? I can get some. Meet me out back. Teachers are going to come around the corner. What are you guys doing over there? Are you smoking? No. What are we doing? Oh, we're, ju we're just reading the Bible. Can you imagine groups gathered around? Make it illegal and watch what happens. Boldness. It's time for us to be bold. Listen, there is no alternative to the gospel. We have the hope of the world. Do you know that Jesus saves to the uttermost? There's nobody right now on this planet that God doesn't love and will not save. He's just trying to get us filled with boldness again. When the church prays, the church gets bold. And when the church gets bold, number three, prayer unifies us. In 2000, year 20. 2000, let's say 23 years ago, I was in Cuba. And back then there was an embargo against Cuba. It was illegal to go into Cuba. If you were an American, there was a penalty. So I had to go through Mexico, fly into Havana, me and a friend from Latin America. We flew in there and we were going there to encourage Christians because church is persecuted there in Cuba under the communist regime. And so we landed in Havana and we had been up for 24 hours 
His, his car got stolen the night before, so we were like up all night, had to get on a plane, get there, and we rented a minivan called a Wawa, and we began to drive it across the island. Well, there's one highway the entire length of the island of Cuba. And so we drove all the way to the end of the island to a, a town called Old Guin, and we drove all night long. There's no street lights. And we wake up in the morning, and he says, we're gonna go, do, we're gonna go preach to these pastors who are gonna be meeting in a church. So there are some churches there. The deal in Cuba is if a church was built prior to 1957 when the communist revolution took place, you could keep it, but you could never build a new one and you couldn't add on to it. So there's churches there, but they're half the size of this room. So we wake up and we go into this church. And all these pastors had gathered, 50 to 60 pastors had gathered in this room and the spirit of God just fell in that room. I mean, powerful. We're praying for people. There's no catchers. People are falling out, hitting their head on cement blocks and getting healed. I don't know how it happens. And I got in the minivan and I told my friend who had been there before, I said, is that a Pentecostal church? He goes, no, it was a Baptist church. So we go to the next town, Camagüey. We go into a church. And we're preaching, and they're just worshiping on their faces. And again, healings break out. Tongues break out. They're praying. I don't even know Spanish, but it was, Mas fuego, mi padre. I know that much. I'm like, more fire, my father. I'm like, yeah, send the fire, Lord. We get back in the minivan. I'm like, was that a Pentecostal church? And he goes, no, that was an Episcopal church. <laughs> we go to the next town. Same thing. I go, now I'm not even asking. I'm like, what kind of church was that? That was a Lutheran church. And then we go to another one. What was that? That was a Catholic church. And then we go to another one. I'm like, what was that? And he goes, that was an Assembly of God church. I'm like, ah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> 20 times in two days. And all of them said the same thing. Cuba para Cristo. Cuba for Christ. You see, when the persecution came, they looked at each other and they recognized we need each other. Yeah. All these differences are distinctives. We might have differences of agreement on some things, but what we know is we're brothers and sisters in Christ and, and they became united. They had 40 years of being united and praying together. And when you do that, listen, revival takes place. Here's the untold story of Cuba. In the last 40 years, 25% of the population on the island of Cuba has gotten born again and spirit-filled. 25%, one out of every four. <clears throat> the next year we went back and one of the leaders, the apostolic leaders on the island had been arrested and threatened and then his brother fell and died and everybody thought that Castro killed him. So Castro called this apostolic leader in and he said, you gotta call off all of your people across the island because there was protests. You gotta call it all off. And this man's name is Alejandro. He said, well, what are you gonna do for us? And Castro himself said, what do you want? He said, allow us to have crusades in the Plaza de Revolucion, have it on nationally televised programming and let us come together for two days. And he said, done. So we showed up there on the Plaza de Revolucion where they had a stage set up and freely preached the gospel in Cuba for two days. And I stood there and I watched in a communist nation as thousands of Christians gathered 
And they gave an altar call and it took us 15 minutes to drive around the response. 15 minutes in a car to drive around the altar call. They became unified and they became bold because for 40 years, all they had was each other. And they prayed together and they cheered one another on. What would happen if we allowed our hearts to become united, not even just across denominational lines, but in the church? Can I tell you something? You can't hate somebody you pray with. Show up to a prayer meeting and try to hate somebody. I dare you. I mean, like, show up, literally. The devil hates prayer meetings. So that spirit of hate won't come with you. You're going to be in there. All of a sudden, your heart's going to get warm towards them. Forgiveness is going to come. The more you pray with somebody, your heart is going to unify around them. The Bible says that they were heart and soul. One heart, one soul. Do you know that there is nothing impossible for a group of people who are heart and soul? who have one heart and one soul. I'm not talking about just we check the box on our statement of faith. I'm talking about heart and soul. I'm in this with you. The greatest gift you can give your pastor, speaking as a pastor for 27 years, the greatest gift that you can give to them is to say, pastor, we are with you heart and soul, whatever you need. If you need us to serve, you need us to give, you want us to pray, we are here with you. That's not for him. He's the carrier of the vision that God gave to him. This couple down here has given themselves to say yes to Jesus when they could have done a whole lot of other things. The greatest gift that you can give them is to be unified. Because the devil wants to divide and conquer. And we might even feel justified in our division. It's like, well, you don't know what they did. You don't know how they hurt me. Can I just tell you... If if you're looking for a perfect church, you're never going to find it. If you do find it, don't go to it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> it was perfect before you got there, and it is no longer perfect. See, God wants to unify us. Heaven wants to unify with the earth, and he wants us unified. And there's nothing more powerful than unified prayer. In the book of Genesis, God himself, speaking about wickedness at the Tower of Babel, said, they speak one language and nothing will be impossible for them. That's evil. Can you imagine what righteousness can do? If God can get one people saying the same thing, praying the same thing, overcoming satanic distractions and divisions and not giving the devil any place in our lives, that's what happens when the church prays. We get unified. Number four, prayer detonates through our lives. It's that atomic reaction. Prayer detonates. You drop a bomb, it detonates. That's ground zero, but it has a ripple effect of power, immense power that is unleashed. Yes. We have no idea the power that can be released through our prayers. And I, I just want to tell some of you, I, I, I sense the Lord just wanting to highlight this. You've been praying and felt unseen and you felt like your prayers haven't been heard, but only heaven knows only heaven knows the shifts that your prayers have made. And can I just tell you, only heaven knows the prayers that have been prayed that you and I are standing in today by others. I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I would have never chosen to move to Kalamazoo, Michigan. It's, I, I, literally, I was raised, I was born in Detroit. 
And you know, Eminem, by the way, Eminem, they made a whole movie like he lived on eight miles. He lived there for nine months. He's, he's from St. Joseph, Missouri. And the reason I know that is because I grew up right near eight mile. So everybody there knows it's like, nah, he didn't live here. But then I transplanted to Grand Rapids and then God called us to Kalamazoo. For me as a kid living in Grand Rapids, which is an hour north, Kalamazoo was like a direction on a highway. It was on the sign, Kalamazoo, Big Rapids North. That's how you went. And so when God called us there, Jane and I labored there for years and years and years and years and years. And our, we started in a prayer meeting. God spoke to me in my car in 1996 when I was 25 years old, about ready to plant the church. And I'm crying out to God, God, I don't know how to do this. He said, build a praying and a worshiping church. And so our first thing was a prayer meeting. We've had prayer meetings. I've sustained prayer meetings. I've killed prayer meetings. I've relaunched prayer meetings. And oftentimes have wondered, Lord, I don't know why I'm in Kalamazoo. I don't know why. In 2015, I got a notification in my email for Ancestry.com. Has anybody ever done that before where you, like, check your family history? So it was free and since my wife is Dutch and we're cheap, I'm like, can't give up 30-day free trial of anything. So, hey, let's just punch this in. Let's see what's going on. So I do the, I, I start punching in inf information of my family, my dad, my grandparents. All of a sudden, it begins to fill it in. It's crazy, the database that they have. Comes up that, I, so the first Christian, to my knowledge, was my great-grandmother, her name was Wilma Norton, Wilma Bird Norton. She was a godly woman. I knew her when I was uh, a kid. She lived to be 87 years old. But when her name popped up, then it showed me her mom's name. Her mom's name was Lillian Kilborn Bird. And she lived and died in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And in fact, she's buried three-quarters of a mile away from my house in a cemetery, and I found in an unmarked grave, of which we put a grave marker in. She died on my birthday, 1922. And she was saved in her youth at a Billy Sunday crusade. And she was an intercessor. And she lived in a house on North Street, which today is a parking lot. But I've driven by that parking lot many times, and I've looked at it and go, a hundred years ago, my great-great-grandmother was in this spot praying prayers that God waited four generations to answer. And somewhere along the line, God, even after my great-great-grandmother went to heaven, her prayers were still coming up before the Father. And God ultimately said, now's the moment. And he took her great-great-grandson dragged him down to Kalamazoo, Michigan, put an anointing on his life to answer the prayers of a woman who's already in heaven. You say, how does that work? I don't know. But I know I'm living in Kalamazoo. And I know I have a prayer room in the city of Kalamazoo where morning, noon, and night, worship and adoration is ascending from the heart of the most progressive city in the Midwest. And I know I've got a school of ministry where we have 200 students who are being trained up to be bold witnesses to Jesus, birthed in not only the word of God, but in the prayer room. 
And I believe, I can't help but believe that a lot of what I'm walking in today is the prayer legacy of my great-great-grandmother. You don't have any idea about the prayers you're praying today or the prayers that someone has prayed for you. But listen, you can pray prayers today that are gonna set into motion things that you might not even live to see in your lifetime. Can I tell you something about prayer? A hundred percent of the prayers you don't pray won't be answered. A hundred percent. Let me repeat that for the back. A hundred percent of the prayers we don't pray won't get answered. Think about the prayers we don't pray. And God is looking for a bold people because he wants to detonate. I believe he wants to unleash revival in a generation. I believe that he wants to move in an unprecedented way. I believe what we've begun to see at Asbury and out in California and even in Kalamazoo and different places this last year, those are just like sprinkling on the windshield. God's just like, I can still move. I can still do what I've done. You, you, you think the Welsh revival was something? Watch what I can do in the American revival. You think the Jesus revolution was something? Wait until the LGBTQ community that the world has looked at and just celebrated instead of trying to see them be set free. What would happen if Jesus moved in that community? Our churches aren't prepared for the influx of people that would experience the grace of God. Get ready because it's going to happen. Get ready because it's going to happen. What's going to happen among our kids? Young people who are going to be raised up like Deborah's and Daniel's. Prayer detonates through us. And revival is the mushroom cloud of a united praying church. The last thing that prayer does is prayer changes cities. Prayer changes cities. In Jerusalem, the city was changed forever because of this prayer meeting. Because of this moment. And in the same way today, prayer changes cities. In in 1857 in Manhattan, oftentimes we can think about that period of time of 1800s and think, oh, all of America, everybody went to church, everybody was spiritual, everybody was Christians, but that's not true. America was in a state of spiritual decline. 30 million was the population of America at that time. And in Manhattan, which was basically the center of the world, just down the street from Wall Street, just down the street from where the World Trade Centers will be built, there was a reformed church that decided they needed to hire a outreach pastor. So they went through the interview process and they hired a 48-year-old businessman by the name of Jeremiah Calvin Lampier. He had worked on Wall Street, felt called in the ministry, church posted it, he applied for it, they hired him and said, you've got whatever you need. We just wanna see people come in to the church. We wanna grow again. We wanna see people get saved. And so he began to think through and actually pray and say, God, what do you want me to do? And the Lord spoke to him and said, start a prayer meeting. And so he did. He made a little triangular sign that he put out on the corner and it advertised noon prayer meeting, one hour, come one, come all. And on September the 23rd, 1857, 
Jeremiah Kelvin Lampier went down into this basement prayer room and he waited and for the first 30 minutes, nobody showed up. But 30 minutes in, the first person came. That day, the first member of his prayer meeting was a half an hour late, but they prayed. And he said, tomorrow we're gonna do the same thing. So the next day, he put the same sign back out and this time 17 people came from five different denominations. And for the next hour, these businessmen who had heard that prayer was taking place took their lunch hour and they came together and they prayed. And then they went back to work. By the end of March of that year, 6,000 people in New York were praying one hour a day at noon across 150 different locations. And momentum was gaining steam. By the end of March, over 6,000 people were meeting daily in New York, but by May of that year, 150,000 were meeting now across the United States at noon because they wanted to be a part of what was taking place in New York. Kalamazoo had an expression of this, which is very, very interesting to me. Probably your city did as well. But 150,000 people stretched across the United States every day at noon. We're gonna give up lunch and we're gonna pray. It was called the Businessmen's Noon Prayer Revival. <clears throat> and what they estimate is that over the course of time between 1858 and 1859, one year, almost 1 million people out of 30 million population received Christ. And it turned the tide of America. It's, it's regarded as the revival that spared the union. One man in a basement of a church in the middle of a hostile climate who is given a responsibility to do one thing, but then said, I'm gonna start by being a person of prayer and I'm gonna start a prayer meeting, I'm gonna prioritize it, began a ripple effect that changed one million lives in one year. Prayer changes cities. And I wonder tonight, what could happen if we became people of prayer? What would happen if we just turned the temperature on the thermostat a little higher with our prayers? What would happen if the most packed out meeting out of all the meetings at New Song Church was the prayer meeting? What time is your prayer meeting? It's at noon, isn't it? Wednesdays, right? What would happen if on Wednesday at noon, this room was standing room only for prayer? I'll tell you what, it would unify us. It would embolden us. Oh, God would detonate some things through us. It would shake us to the core and it would return us back to New, Christ, New Testament Christianity. I believe this is what God's speaking in this hour. He's trying to get the attention of the church and saying, I want you to not just be a nice church, I want you to be a dangerous church. And a dangerous church is a praying church. Would you stand with me all across this room tonight? I'm gonna ask you to give me 30 seconds of total undivided focus and to really tune your ear in in this moment right now. 
to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that when the disciples walked with Jesus, they were at every one of his revival meetings. They saw all of his healings, all of his miracles, heard all of his teaching. And yet, when they got Jesus alone, they didn't say, Jesus teaches to preach. They said, Jesus teaches to pray. Because they saw something in the way he prayed that affected the way he lived. And I believe that the, the Lord tonight wants, wants to spark and wants to stir in our lives a deep, deep hunger to say, God, make me a person of prayer. Make me a person of prayer. I want, I want to be a person of prayer. I don't know how. I need to grow. I may not even have the hunger and thirst, but I'm asking you, if you'll give me the hunger, I'll respond back to you with it. Make me a person of prayer. Or maybe you're already a prayer warrior and you're saying, God, today I'm, I'm taking my place on the wall and saying, I'm gonna be an intercessor. I'm gonna stand and I'm gonna be an intercessor and I'm gonna believe. Theory will only get me so far, but I'm gonna believe and my prayer is gonna ignite revival and I'm gonna stay on the wall until I see it. If the Holy Spirit is marking you tonight, you're saying, Lord, here am I, send me. Here am I. Fill me with an anointing to pray. I'm hungry for it. I want that. I want to respond. I want to become a dangerous Christian. Then all over this room, I just want you to lift your hands. If that's you, just say, God, here am I. Lord, here we are. And I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you would come and mark us as we reach out to you. As we respond with hands lifted up, Lord, this is war. The Christian life is not like a war. The Christian life is a war. And we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God. They're not carnal. To the pulling down of strongholds, and so, Lord, teach our hands to war. Teach us to pray. But, Lord, would you birth in us a desire and mark us individually and let this house be marked as a house of prayer for all nations. Release, release the anointing for prayer. This is my, my request, Lord. Would you release the anointing of intercession? Lord, release the groan. Release travail. Release intercession. Release boldness. Unity. Only you can do it, God. Come on, in your own words, I want you to ask God. Come on, this is where prayer begins. You begin to pray to the Father about prayer. Say, God, teach me to pray. Mark me in prayer. Stir me for prayer. Lord, meet me in prayer. Make me a vessel of prayer. Come on, cry out to him right now. Lift up your voices to him. All across this room, your voice matters. Your voice matters. He hears your voice. He responds to your voice. Tell them what you want. Tell them what you desire. Maybe you just need to pray out in the Spirit tonight. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. 
mark is gone. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.